G'day everybody, welcome to the Inner Voice Podcast. This is day 19 of the I'm Curious to Know Project, and I'm your host, Travis McKenzie. Today I'm pleased to welcome Emma Grant, professional cyclist for the 2020 women's team. She's an incredible talent with the desire to reach the top level of her sport. As is often the case, her journey has been far from routine, and after facing considerable setbacks, she's now focused on giving back. Last month, she completed the Everesting Challenge on Mount Lemmon in Tucson, Arizona. Four ascents and 194 miles later, she achieved her goal of reaching 29,029 feet and managed to raise $7,500 for No Kid Hungry along the way. That's the equivalent of 75,000 meals for kids in need. Many of the kids that No Kid Hungry supports have lost access to school food programs during the COVID-19 pandemic. Through Chef Cycle, which is an event and group of incredible people who are near and dear to my heart, No Kid Hungry has pivoted to feed kids wherever and however possible. Their work is more important now than ever. If you enjoyed today's show or feel obliged, please consider a donation through the link in the show notes. It truly is a great cause and kudos to Emma for her efforts to build awareness and raise some much needed dollars along the way. Have a great day and enjoy the show. Emma, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> we kind of connected on Instagram and uh, you have your bio there as a nomadic, half Kiwi, half Pom professional cyclist. I want to hear about um, how that all rolls out. How's the family dynamic there? I'm known for having boxes scattered across, well, across the world really. Like in the US, people have kindly let me leave boxes here and there and the bulk of my stuff is back in the UK with my parents, so that's home home. And I show up at my parents a couple of times a year and dump some more stuff and then go on to the next location. Yeah, yeah. And that's high roll, slightly unorthodox, and don't know if that's still acceptable at my age, but that's <laughs> what I'm doing. <laughs> well, you're you're doing your thing and you're living the dream and I, I have read that you really were determined to become a professional athlete and your background really was in running. Um, and as happens a lot with runners, injuries lead to cross training and things like that. But I also know that you were a part of a talent ID program. Tell us a little bit about your endurance sports background and that drive that you had to be a professional athlete, no matter what. Yeah. Like ever since um, I can remember, all I wanted to do was be the next Paula Radcliffe or the next Kelly Holmes. Like I was just obsessed and biomechanically we just was not cut out for running. It, I was a walking disaster and just always injured. Um, and then I was in my last year at school and when London won the bid for the 2012 Olympics, they put a lot of money into talent identification and my P teacher at the time was like, Oh, you should try out. But I was actually too young. So I had to lie about my age on the UK sport application form. And so just to get tested. So went along to the first stop testing, put out the best what bike, um, three minute score, average power, and then like progress through different ranks and, had a good engine for endurance cycling, so it kind of kind of went from yeah. there. You mentioned you're kind of looking up to Paula Radcliffe and, and Callie Holmes, and then obviously then transferring those skills to cycling. Did you immediately kind of latch onto that sport or find an interest in that sport? I think I just wanted to go to the Olympics. That was it. It's all very well having a good engine in road cycling, but there's so much more to it than just that. Once I was picked up 
via this talent ID program, British Cycling put me into my first race. So they sent me to a fourth cat men's race at this um, notorious circuit race that has a lot of crashes. And so I jumped into this race having ridden a road bike for like a whole week and ended up going right into the back of a pileup and knocking <laughs> my teeth out. And so I learned very quickly that, yeah, there's definitely more to just being able to put power down. What a way to uh, introduce yourself to cycling. Anyone who's been to a cat four crit anywhere in the world knows that it's the, probably the most dangerous place in the whole entire world. My poor dad, um, uh, like that was his introduction to this new sport I discovered. He's watching by the side of the road and he um, ends up like scooping my teeth off, off the tarmac, going to the clubhouse, getting a glass of milk to prolong the life of these teeth and then hopped in the ambulance with me with my teeth in a glass of milk where they oh just proceeded to pop them back in at the... <laughs> local Hillingdon Hospital so yeah. Did you then have apprehensions did you then think what have I got myself into these this is crazy I'm gonna ruin myself in short order here if I continue this crazy cycling thing. I think I'd already just got the bug I was just exposed to a lot of top British riders at the time so they put me into the what they called the Olympic development program so I was put on training camps with the likes of Laura Trott who then went on to be multiple Olympic champion so I was just exposed to these riders and that really sparked that sense of well maybe I could be something so and were they you know were the athletes that you were on the team with or in training camp with were they super helpful to you and kind of guiding you along and mentoring you through that experience no (laughs) no (laughs) No. one of the girls I'm really good friends with her now but I just remember like complaining about how bad saddle sore I had after like the first week and she's like just like suck it up suck it up like <laughs> okay <laughs> I guess this is how it is <laughs> this is how it is was there do you think there was an element of like you know maybe and I've heard this from um from other athletes who have gone through those talent identification programs where there's a little bit of this feeling of you know I've been a cyclist all my life this is what I do and then all of a sudden this runner comes in and they're on the team and they didn't even really have to try. Do you think there was an element of that at all? Yeah, 100%. You get that vibe as well through like the Zwift Academy schemes that are going on now with riders um, getting into pro teams. Yeah, it's like riders that have come through their rank, the ranks and worked themselves up. Um, it's, it's not nice to have someone just miss out a lot of stages but come in with a good engine yeah scoop scoop in um did that change over time like once you you know develop those relationships show some results show some talent did any of those kind of feelings go away or was it you know arm's length for the rest of your life type of feeling we were probably warm to each other more (laughs) yeah but it, it i think yeah like when you're 19 it's kind of a little caddy environment Mm. Now tell me about then the transition to a pro team. So you go from development, um, British cycling development programs, uh, and then you're, you're entering professional teams. Tell me about that transition. What was that like for you? I, I guess I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like I was in limbo for a while. Like I had a place to go to university and cycling historically doesn't really have a good culture in encouraging, especially in the UK, like encouraging further education alongside pursuing a career in cycling. So, yeah, I kind of did it my way a little bit, but it wasn't 
necessarily a natural progression. Now tell me about that Olympic dream. You wanted to be an Olympian. You want to be on the biggest stage. You want to be a professional athlete. Have your dreams kind of um, matched up with reality at this point in your career? No, I would say my 20s have been very rocky. (laughs) I mean, I've had a lot of injury problems and setbacks and for me, the Olympics is still the pinnacle of the sport. Even other cyclists would disagree with that. But I guess coming from a different sporting background, I see the Olympics as kind of the pinnacle. Um, I'm definitely not done. I don't know where the rest of my career lies, but I'm, I'm not fulfilled and I'm, I'm not done. <laughs> yeah. You did allude to you know some of the, the challenges you've had in your 20s and the injuries and things like that. And I think that from what I can understand, it's given you perspective, um, you know, on what's really is important, but it's also given you that drive and hunger. And I know myself, when you're coming back from injuries or illness or things like that, um, your dreams become even more real and you want to chase them even that much more because there is a chance that it's taken away from you. So why don't you tell me a little bit about some of those challenges that you've faced and the injuries and the surgeries and all of the things you've been to, to, to be able to continue. Probably 2013, I just started not feeling right on the bike and the culture in cycling was just like harden up, harden up, like you're just not tough enough. Like, So for a few years, I just was really trying to figure out why I just didn't feel right and um, was just losing power, losing power, and then went and saw a variety of different specialists and was eventually diagnosed with chronic fatigue and went down that path for a bit, but... Yeah, my legs just didn't feel right. And I'd, I'd had a friend that had this iliac artery endofibrosis condition in her artery. And um, I was pretty sure that that's what I had. Eventually, I got a diagnosis for that in both legs. But the surgeon didn't want to operate because it wasn't the condition wasn't bad enough. So it was basically like, go away, make it worse, get it to the point of being um, fibrotic enough that I need to operate. So I was like, okay, well. And then I had a bit of false hope, like other therapists suggesting... I tried different things and yeah, just went on this massive hustle of trying to figure it, figure it all out and eventually decided I did want to carry on cycling and surgery was definitely the only option. And so I had one leg done the worst side and then waited for that to really feel like it had worked and then had the other leg done almost two years later. From what I understand, it's a pretty significant surgery as well. Tell us about, well, two things, what that was like, and then the recovery. How did you then realize or feel like it had worked? Surgeons definitely don't want to do it. They see it as a very much a lifestyle problem. You could just quit pushing pedals and you'd be totally fine. So they basically cut into the iliac artery, which comes off the aorta, and into the femoral artery as well, and widen it and clear it out, and then using a bit of cowheart, bovine patch. Yeah, then it's a very conservative return to cycling because you have to let the artery figure out how to dilate again and you can't get your blood pressure up very high for a long time and you don't want to mess around with it. (laughs) Obviously, you have to be very careful. And then you mentioned that you waited until you knew that it had worked or that you felt better. What was kind of, was there testing done for that? Would, you know, can they put dyes in to kind of see that dilation and see the, the vessels working or was it just a gut feel that you had? Uh, a bit of both. They like, they can test and check out the blood pressure and um, ultrasound artery and see how well it's dilating. But I just got such a good intuitive feel of how my legs felt. And because I had, one done and one not done, I had a very good comparison. And what's the likelihood of the surgery being successful? 
did they give you those odds before? I think the research says maybe 80%. Yeah, it's it's not uncommon for people to have to go back and have it done again. Pauline Frampreveau, the French mountain biker, she yeah. just had hers redone recently, so it's risky. Maybe I should go and get tested because I've I feel like I'm significantly losing power. It's probably to do with the fact that I don't do any training anymore and I have two kids and I'm lazy. But I'm looking for any excuse, so maybe I'll go get tested to see if I have an issue. <laughs> We had Alison Jackson on a couple of days ago um, and you uh, crossed over on the same team as her. We were kind of catching up before we went on air to talk about how ridiculously funny she actually was. You had mentioned that, yes, that's the case and also confirmed her kamikaze reputation as well. That girl's ability to turn herself inside out is like next level. And I just remember watching the footage when we were racing it was Cadell Evans road race in Australia and she was going for the QOM I think on the final steep punchy hill and if 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 that video is still online like her pain face is next level it's incredible that's if yeah if anyone needs to learn how to hurt themselves like go watch that for inspiration now you had mentioned you kind of listened to the podcast this morning and it's serendipitous because i remember reading that during the early stages of of covid you were obviously you know wondering what to do you were still out training you were spending time out on mount lemon you're listening to podcasts and you heard a story of someone who had failed an everesting attempt uh and then you had this bright idea that that sounded like a really good idea yeah i guess i was just feeling a little lost and just going through the motions and yeah I got inspired to do an everything attempt hearing someone's story about how much it sucked <laughs> and yep. how I didn't complete it um and I was riding on Mount Lemon at the time and um I thought okay that's a great idea and I want I definitely wanted to do something for charity and everyone kept saying how Mount Lemon is a really bad mountain to do an everything attempt on so I was like okay that's that's what I'm doing then you did mention the charity aspect and um, we've kind of alluded to it as well where you did want to do some good as a part of this it wasn't just a selfish endeavor of I'm going to go and ride up this mountain a bunch of times and um, and that'll be the end of it you wanted to actually do some good the story of how you came to choose No Kid Hungry I think is really interesting as well and, and really thought out so give us a bit of a background on how that came to be we just finished team training camp here in Tucson and I was staying with this lovely family and I'd actually just broken my foot. So I was walking around the house in this knee high brace, like lugging this boot around, feeling sorry for myself, ready to discharge myself from wearing it. I was like, I don't need this boot. And the mother was telling me about how these kids at her um, school that she teaches at, some of them are homeless and they'd come to show up to school without shoes and haven't eaten and um, how she has to take a stash of energy bars to school and have them under her desk to help boost their blood sugar levels. And so, yeah, that put in perspective my suffering at that point in time. <laughs> I think that's one thing that, you know, a lot of people don't know is there is a huge population of the U.S., um, kids in the U.S. who actually rely on food programs for their nutrition. They don't actually eat at home. The weekends are really tough because they don't get food. And the organization that you did support, No Kid Hungry, they have an amazing initiative called Chef Cycle where chefs get together and ride their bike over a three-day period um, and they raise some incredible funds. And then you decided that that was the organization that you wanted to support um, because of the fact that the, the mother where you were staying 
mentioned to you that some of these kids go hungry. I believe we're at about $7,500 that you raised. That's the equivalent of 75,000 meals for kids in the US, which I think is incredible. Cycling feels like a very selfish sport often. So I think, Mm. yeah, a lot of endurance athletes say that they feel they lead a very selfish lifestyle. So to do something for a greater purpose, it brings a different level of satisfaction um, and value. So now, did you tap into that feeling of satisfaction and value and, and doing good uh, during your Everesting attempt? Obviously, there's times where you're going dark and it's deep and you're like, why am I doing this? Did those thoughts of those kids come into your mind in those moments? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I fueled my 10,000 kills your day very well. So I was very privileged that I could suffer well fueled. But yeah. also, I think... It was a different pressure that people had sponsored me before I'd completed it. Like I, my sister was like, well, I'm definitely not going to um, sponsor you until you've got around. So I felt a different pressure on my back that people had, were backing me before I'd even finished this thing. So that definitely helps uh, keep me on the pedals. <laughs> you mentioned that Mount Lemon was like not a suggested place to do an Everesting. Tell us about that. Yeah, so for me, it was like four-hour laps, basically. And it's it's a very shallow gradient. It's quite undulating, but then it topped out. I think the highest elevation. It's over nine thousand feet, nine thousand to ten thousand feet at the top. The changes in elevation that makes it harder to deal with, and it doesn't make for a good Everesting um, course. It makes for a long day. Yeah, a lot of people choose maybe a 10, 20, 30 minute climb that's steeper um, and yeah. do laps of that. Mount Lemon didn't check any of those boxes. <laughs> now tell me about those kind of some of those challenges that you face. So obviously starting lower, getting higher, so the air is getting thinner. I'm assuming that probably, um, you know, it's getting cooler at the top, so you've got to pack the right gear. What were some of those like logistical challenges that you faced throughout the day? A friend of mine had kindly left his car at the top. So we had snacks up there and bottles. So every ascent I finished, I could stock up before I descended again. Second lap, he was riding at a social distance with me and then just out of the blue just bonked and I was like oh, I'll just carry on tapping at my rhythm and I'll like meet him again at the top and then I totally forgot that he had the keys so I was like oh no crap I'm just gonna have to wait around in the cold at his car until he <laughs> shows up with his keys and then um so yeah there were logistical mishaps like that um and then my team team owner Nicola she showed up with her with the team car for a bit and to shout some snacks and uh keep hand sanitizing whilst dishing out water bottles and all that jazz that's I've heard from other Everesting attempts it kind of becomes this a little bit of a folklore tale on the mountain where there's other people out there and they get enthused by what you're doing or the other person is doing did you have moments like that where people are kind of getting to understand what you're doing and cheering you along and supporting you along the way as well? Yeah, there were people that would just like stop in the laybys and like cheer me on. And the two people that I'd found on the Everesting website that had used Mount Lemon to Everest on a couple of years ago, I reached out to them via Facebook and they drove over like a couple of hours to ride part of it with me. So, yeah, it was really neat that I had people just cheering me on randomly that I wasn't expecting. I think it was four ascents. Talk me through like at what point was, you know, did you come to 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 think, okay, this is enough. I might, you know, I'm going to tap out at this one or I could just roll down the hill and go home. 
Someone was asking me the other day, and I didn't really have a dark patch. I think if it had been five, I would have been like, no thanks, I'm done. <laughs> I wasn't doing it like a time trial effort, so I was always comfortable enough. For me, that day was not really about like a certain time or a certain wattage. I was just like enjoying the journey. So if I'd been like pushing into the red, like I'm sure I would have had yeah. a lot more of those moments which is interesting because it was a long day it was 15 hours from what i understand almost 200 miles you know even if you are taking it easy or finding your rhythm or, or respecting your rhythm uh it's still a long time to be in the saddle yeah like i i felt like i could keep going longer but i couldn't really go any harder like the yeah. last ascent I had a couple of um mates join that were fresh and like a little too enthusiastic and i was just like Feel free to half-wheel me, but 200 watts is all I'm doing right now. Whenever you finish an, you know, an epic challenge or an epic training day, I feel like there's always this adrenaline burst you get towards the end. Did you experience that as well? You know, you can kind of see the top. I know you finish in the dark. Did you get that kind of burst of energy, you know, towards the end of the, the fourth ascent? Yeah, I did. And being at altitude gives me that kind of feeling, that slightly euphoric feeling, being that high up and it's yeah. dark and the stars are amazing and... It was like a whole day of kind of forgetting about coronavirus, um, mm -hmm. which is really refreshing. And then when I hit the caffeine with like a one ascent to go, that always gives me a, a good boost. What were the emotions like at the top? You finished, it's dark, you're probably cold. What were the emotions that you felt? Yeah, the sense of euphoria, <laughs> um, but also relief. Like I was mm -hmm. definitely winging it. I, I had broken my foot probably less than eight weeks before that and so I was really worried that like my foot wasn't going to hold out and I'd like be 10 hours in and I'd get out the saddle and like that bone would snap or something I, I don't know I just had a horrid vision of that happening um so yeah relief euphoria and just that satisfied fatigue yeah, it's a glorious feeling, right? You're like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad to be done, but I'm also so proud of what I just achieved. Now, tell me about um, the reaction following. You talked about people supporting you and donating before and give, that giving you a bit of momentum and incentive. And then what was the reaction afterwards? You know, looking at the fundraising page, you know, there's people who are giving you big shout outs and kudos. It was so nice to just open up my email inbox every day and have a notification of random donors. And initially I was like reaching out and thanking everyone. And then it kind of got a little too much and I was like, I can't keep this up. But I was just, it was, yeah, it was so nice, especially during this time. It's really hard to ask people for money because it's a difficult time financially. Well, it's an important cause. And I think that, you know, that resonates with a lot of people. And I know Phil Guyman's raised, over a hundred thousand, I think he's just set his bar at two hundred thousand. He's kind of extended his reach a little bit for the remainder of the year, and you know, and there's a lot of other cyclists who support that cause and chefs who support the cause. And perhaps this might be the impetus for you to commit to another adventure um, to raise funds whilst we're still in a little bit of limbo before racing starts again. I was talking to a friend about this the other day, and I was like, I'm calling it the ACCC the after corona challenge calendar like everything is getting a little bit old now i think and need to figure out something novel um yeah. so i don't know what the next edition will be 
but we have a few months. I um, hopefully we'll get some. Maybe we'll get some ideas from the audience and from the from the crowd here to see if there's uh, any other ideas that, that uh, people have for fundraising ideas that aren't Everesting Mount Lemon. And that don't what? involve a static trainer. Yeah, that's right. And you don't have to be inside. <laughs> well, you you also have to be careful now in Arizona. It's going to get hot. So, um, you know, the daytime long rides and stuff is probably, you want to start avoiding that here pretty soon too, probably. I don't. I actually love the heat. <laughs> I'm a bit of a heat freak. Well, that might be the, the British part in you coming out. You're like, let me make the most of this. I know. Are you excited about um, racing coming back? I know I talked to Alison a couple of days ago and there's a tentative calendar starting in August. You know, what's the team thinking? Are you guys targeting any races? Are you personally targeting any events? I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll have racing happening in towards the latter end of August. But, I mean, who knows? Maybe nationals will go ahead in at the end of August. So that's kind of what I'm working towards. It's hard to get your hopes up. Um, yeah. I don't want to be sounding too pessimistic, but in a way, it seems like this fantasy calendar a little bit. But well, it must be hard for motivation too. I know that you know when like races get postponed and cancelled, and some of the athletes I've talked to have really struggled and gone through those waves of emotions. Perhaps cycling is different because the the training is actually a lot of fun. Like just getting out and riding your bike is actually an amazing time, and a lot of cyclists really enjoy that part of their job. And because racing happens so often. Perhaps it's not as much of a hit. You know, runners that I talk to, they race maybe two or three times a year. So, or triathletes, same thing. They're, you know, once a year is kind of the big event. You know, the fact you do get to race so often means that motivation isn't such a challenge for you at this point. I don't think the initial disappointment and like grieving the season cancellation hit me as hard because I was coming back from that foot injury and my year wasn't going so well. And there's a lot of benefit for me right now um, to spend the next few months just really training and working on my weaknesses and rebuilding back up. So comparing my situation to some of my teammates, for example, that were on top form for the Tokyo Olympics and then to have that taken out of the equation and and they were ready to retire at the end of the Olympics and had a great career lined up to walk into like that. Their circumstances mm-hmm. are very different to mine right now, whereas I can definitely maximize this time out of racing and use it to my advantage. You know, we've talked about the Olympics. Is that something that you are shooting for for next year? And if so, like, do you know what the qualification is and how to kind of make that work in your favor? I'm still in the mentality of dreaming big. And I I really do believe that once my second surgery turns around a little bit and the path starts coming back, I, yeah, I haven't given up hope and I really still want to see what I can do, but I, I don't know what that will lead to. But my situation right now is that I have nothing to lose. I might as well just put my head down and train really hard the next few months and just be open to whatever opportunities present themselves. Tell me about the next few months. Are you going to be in Arizona? Is that kind of home base until things all shake out here? So the tentative plan at the moment is to head to Boulder in a couple of weeks. My friend ended up going back to Guatemala to be in lockdown. So she wants her car taken back to where she is in Boulder, uh, where she usually lives in Boulder. So I was planning this nice week, two-week road trip gap year kind of adventure to get there. But I yep. just don't really know, like, what's okay travel-wise, mm. like visiting national parks and making a cool training adventure trip out of it. Like, it's just a bit 
nobody knows really what's acceptable. So somehow or another, I'm planning to make my way to Boulder and train there for a month and then head back to the UK at the end of June. Yeah, you're right. It's it's hard to know what to do, um, but it would be a perfect time to see some of those national parks probably because <laughs> there will be no one there. This has been great. I, I'm so grateful for you for joining me and and sharing the story of you know your background and your history and how you got into the sport and doing good and raising money for No Kid Hungry through Chef Cycle. So I appreciate that. And I want to end this segment or this show with three questions that I throw my guests uh, each and every day, and you you, you may have heard them. Um, so hopefully you've had a chance to prepare. What's one thing that's changed for you during isolation uh, that you want to keep once we go back to whatever the new normal is? It's funny because I was listening to Alison Jackson's interview on when I was training this morning and she was talking about how she's like listening to songs and really listening to the lyrics and like I'm yeah. finding myself doing that more and more but I can't say that because Alison said that um, <laughs> so I'm gonna say calling my parents regularly without an ulterior motive and just ringing to say hello like I, I'm just, I've been checking in with them and just being like I'm just just saying hi like nothing's happened I'm not in hospital I don't need to you know like yeah, yeah. just ringing to say hi so I'm going to do that more often that's a good one so they're not so they're still a little bit wary of you calling wondering <laughs> what you want what you're looking for or, or you're are you in hospital and you hurt yourself again <laughs> Number two, what's one thing you thought was important before isolation that you're happy to leave in the past? Excessive choice. Like I, mm. I thrive on the simple life and like I definitely suffer from decision fatigue. And so right now when a lot of things just aren't an option, it's my mind is kind of at ease. I'm like, well, I can't do that anyway. Like there's not the same choice. It's you just kind of accept it and work with what you can do. And yeah, that works for me. How are you going to uh, avoid that? Like once start, you know, things start opening up and choice becomes more available, how do you think you'll kind of avoid that decision fatigue? I think I'll just have to have quiet words myself. Like, do you really need <laughs> Just internal dialogue. The inner yeah. voice will help you along your way. Exactly. And then third question, what's been the most memorable moment of joy that you've had during this period? I don't know if this is joy, but randomly... I thought I was living in isolation in my little casita in Arizona, but turns out I've had this little lizard living in my room for the last, it's almost two weeks now. And I don't know how he's still alive, but he's sharing this one room place with me. And initially I was really freaked out by him, but I've grown kind of fond of him and he's getting a little more friendly. And so, yeah, I'm not living in isolation after I've got this lizard. <laughs> Love it. Have you named the lizard? Yeah, I named him after someone annoying. And now that I'm fond of him, I need to rename him. <laughs> well, you don't have to share who the annoying person is in case they're watching or listening. So we can, we can skip that one if you like. Well, the other good thing about um, Mr. or Mrs. Lizard friend there is they're probably keeping the mosquitoes away as well. So... That's well, a good, I was googling like I'm like I don't know what he's surviving off like because I was googling roughly how many days he can survive in this room and yeah I guess he's living off the bugs and moisture off the walls I don't know. There you go. If there's any uh, any lizard experts in the crowd, let us know and uh, we'll be happy to happy to fill in the gaps of how Mr. <laughs> or Mrs. Lizard is is. This is so funny actually. This is um 
So my daughter's three. Uh, she has, for anyone who uh, knows the May Gibbs books, they're an Australian like kids book. They've been around a hundred years. I grew them. I, I read them when I was growing up. So I read this book to her every night. And there's Mr. Lizard is one of the characters in there. And she wants me to tell her stories about Mr. Lizard all the time. So this is quite funny that we're talking about Mr. or Mrs. Lizard in your little little apartment there. Emma, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you joining the show. I really appreciate the work you've done and the support you've given to No Kid Hungry. Um, I know it's making a, an amazing impact on underprivileged and at-risk at kids who need nutrition. So kudos to you for doing that. Um, and I wish you all the best for your comeback and I wish you all the best for your pursuit of the Olympics and I'll be cheering and watching watching closely. So all the best. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. And I look forward to the rest of your interviews for the rest of May. Thanks, Emma, for your support of No Kid Hungry and for sharing your journey with us today. As mentioned before the show, if you feel compelled, please consider making a donation to Feed Kids in Need. Emma's donation page is linked in the show notes. That's it for day 19 of the I'm Curious to Know project. I hope you'll continue to join me each and every day in May. There's some fantastic interviews to come. I'm Travis McKenzie and this is the Inner Voice Podcast.